am Gautam Kumra, Chairman of McKinsey Asia, and you are listening to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. The region is now the world's largest economy. As Asia's economies evolve further, the region has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses across the globe. Join us. Welcome to our Future of Asia podcast, where today we're going to be discussing how you can build a mentally resilient workforce. I'm joined by two folks today, Sam Harvey, the Professor of Psychiatry from the University of New South Wales and Executive Director of the Black Dog Institute. The Black Dog Institute is a research um, institution focused on, on mental health. I'm also joined by Phil Davis from Amazon Web Services. He's the Managing Director of AWS in Asia Pacific and Japan and joins us with over 30 years of experience in the industry. Uh, Welcome, Phil and Sam. Thank you, Alistair. Thanks for having me, Alistair. So the discussion today is is about an important one, and that's about employee mental health and about resilience. It is a critical topic that has risen up the agendas of business leaders globally, uh, and our recent global research has shown that somewhere in the order of one in four employees are reporting signs of burnout. That is also carried across in our region here in Asia. I wonder if where we might start today, Sam, is was, well, what do we mean when we talk about workplace mental health and, and well-being? Yeah, Alistair, I think that how we define these things have, has changed over time. I guess the first part of the definition is what do we mean by mental health? And Clearly, part of mental health is the absence of mental disorder. So it means somebody who's not suffering from depression, not suffering from anxiety. But increasingly, we've realised that it goes beyond that, that mental health isn't just the absence of mental disorder. It's also about feeling content and satisfied in your life, feeling that you've got meaning in the things that you're doing each day. And so really, it's it's now a a combination of, of those broader concepts of well-being and the absence of disorder. In terms of your original question about how does this link in with workplaces, well, we know there's a variety of things that can influence our mental health. Obviously, what's going on in our personal life, our genetics, our biology, all of these things can influence our mental health. In amongst that is the workplace, and we certainly now have many decades of research showing that there are certain workplace situations that can increase the risk of a worker suffering from mental ill health. And also on the flip side, we know that a good workplace, a workplace where people feel supported, where they do work that they feel is meaningful, which provides them with financial stability, those things are all really good for your mental health as well. So the workplace is increasingly realised as a really important predictor of where people are going to sit on that mental health spectrum. One of the things that we certainly hear in in the research is also the impact of stigma uh, within the workplace and the the impact of stigma on people's experience. Uh, I I wonder, Phil, if if you could share of how you've seen stigma play out in workplaces. If you listen to what Sam was talking about, how things have evolved, I certainly from... uh, a business standpoint, I've seen that same evolution. I mean, if you think if you go back 20 or 25 years ago, that was when you really start to see a lot more focus on diversity in the workplace, right? And prior to that, it really wasn't as as front and, and center. And 
while there's still work to be done, I think we've made progress in in that area. I think about 10 years ago, you saw or the workplace, excuse me, become much more inclusive. And I think that's when you started to see less stigma attached to whatever it might be, right? Whether it was mental health issues or people with disabilities and, and being more inclusive of of that or LGBTQI plus community. And then I think as you you look at the last few years, there's been a lot more focus on how do you create a more equitable workforce so everybody has the same access to the same opportunities and feels included and supported. And so I think as you as you look at the last few years in particular, I think it's become much, much, much more open. And I think that also has to start with the top. I think the tone that the top leadership brings to that, and not that Amazon is in any way perfect, but I think if you've ever watched, you know, Jeff Bezos or now Andy Jassy, they're very open about what's working, what's not, what concerns them. And they are very authentic about being very uh, transparent on that whole self and bringing their whole self to the team, which I think then enables other people to feel comfortable doing that as, as well. So I think that's a very important factor. So it sounds like for AWS and even the workforce more generally, there is an important role of tone from the top in terms of creating space to overcome stigma. I wonder if, uh, Sam, if, you, if you'd like to, to share a bit on that, that question of stigma and the role of leaders. It's a really interesting thing. And I, I just you know, want to reiterate that comment Phil just made around the importance of having authentic leadership who are happy to share vulnerability for a whole range of, of reasons, or mental health stigma just being one of them. What's emerging is a slightly more nuanced view about stigma. And what I mean by that is the high levels of stigma that mental health has had for many years and still continues to have in many, many situations is a bad thing. It's a bad thing for people who have suffered from mental ill health because on top of the burden of dealing with a really, at times, difficult and challenging group of disorders. It also means that there's a shame around it and they may not be able to get the level of support they want. Someone is away from work for three weeks with a a broken leg after a sporting accident, they'll be inundated with get well cards and, and things like that. Someone takes three weeks off for depression, the same thing doesn't happen. And I think we have to challenge ourselves about why. It has It has other effects as well, of course, and one of the big ones is it means there's often a long delay in people asking for help, that people realise they might need help for a mental health problem. And, you know, we actually have really effective treatments for depression and anxiety now, but very often the patients I see in my clinic, there has been often a delay of years before they've been able to ask for help, and stigma is a big part of that. Where I say it's a more nuanced view, though, I think what we're finding in the workplaces now is some of the early clumsy attempts to reduce stigma ended up resulting in us getting the message slightly wrong and us kind of getting a message about how being challenged or stressed at work was somehow toxic and was going to result in everyone becoming unwell. And so I think what good organisations now do is when they do stigma reduction or mental health interventions, they do it in a way that that helps and doesn't create additional problems. And and I think that's been a real a real step forward, a step away from this idea of just doing something about mental health is probably good enough to us actually having the same level of critique that we would for all the other things we do in organisations. 
I would love to hear from from both of you about how organisations can support their people. We've heard about leadership transparency. We've heard about authenticity. We've thought about taking a more nuanced view, but what else can leaders do to support their people with mental ill health? At a high level, what really matters in an organisation is where mental health sits on that list of priorities. Any organisation in the world can hold a barbecue for a mental health charity once a year, but if they spend the rest of the year behaving in a way that makes it clear that they're not valuing employee mental health and well-being, then it's not going to have any impact. So realistically, the most important thing is to be honest about where mental health and well-being sits on the hierarchy. And if it sits there up amongst one of the key priorities for business, as, as I think it should, then to put the structure and responsibility around that as you would with the other things that are priority for your business. So you make sure that they're, that senior people have this as something that they're responsible for, that there's correct forums in which it's discussed, et cetera, et cetera. The other two things, aside from that structure, I would just sort of highlight is, number one, we talked about leadership, and given we've got senior leaders like Phil involved in the discussion, I guess there's an assumption that we're talking about the really top tiers of an organisation there. But what we've found from the research is making sure managers are trained around mental health is probably the most effective thing you can do in terms of return on investment for mental health intervention. So we've done studies here in Australia where we have given mid-level managers training about mental health and training that focuses on giving them practical skills about how to talk about mental health, about how to know, how to spot when a, a worker is struggling and what to do about that. And we can give that kind of training in four hours. And when we follow those teams up over six months, the teams where the managers got that simple training had reduced rates of sickness absence, measurable improvements in the manager behaviour, the workers felt more supported. So for me, if, if an organisation was going to do two things, it needs to get that structure right about how it's thinking about mental health and it's got to make sure its trainers and its managers have that type of evidence-based training. Once they've done those two things, there's all sorts of other things they can begin to look at about what's the latest research around how to improve resilience in workers, how can you make sure workers feel control in their work environment, all those other types of things. But you've got to do those first two things. Everything that you said, Sam, really resonated with me. But in particular, there was one thing that I, I thought really resonated, and that's when you said, hey, it's not one day event. We did our, our, our wellness barbecue and check job done. <laughs> I think what I've seen is it's not one size fits all or, or the magic silver bullet that really works. It's a lot of little things as well as tone from the top, as well as some bigger format type of uh, activities. And I, I think that's particularly true in a region like APJ because you have so many different diverse cultures and backgrounds and uh, approaches to life. And so I think you need to continue to be a little bit more customized and personalized to reflect the diversity of of the region. And so it could be littler things, you know, access to life coaching sessions with a certified wellness coach or one-on-one counseling for people that feel like they need more intensive help, crisis and suicide prevention support, or access to licensed mental health clinicians any time of the day. A lot of the pressures actually are, are not 
once again, they're not these these big pressures. It's like the collection of small pressures and work-life balance, especially when the barriers between work and life blurred as we all started working from our homes in February or March of 20. So how do you create an environment that people genuinely feel supported and know it's okay to say no? Say it's okay to say, no, I'm not going to take that call at six or seven or eight or nine o'clock in the evening or four in the morning or whatever it may be. And those kind of pressures didn't necessarily affect everybody the same way. And this is something we started to see probably by May or June of 20, women were having just as much responsibility in the workforce, yet the vast majority of the home responsibilities were falling on them. So how do you give opportunities for all different parts of your population to share kind of what they're going through, but also share tips and tricks and 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 best practices. And so, I, like I said, I think it's a lot of little things. One of the things we implemented towards the end of 20 was a wellness Friday. So one Friday a month, no, uh, no Amazon meetings, uh, focus on mental well-being, focus on exercise, focus on reading, whatever, focus on training. What's interesting, that's one of the things that people feel a little bit stressed about is they want to invest in themselves, but they never feel like they have the time. And the feedback on the Wellness Fridays have been very, very positive. So anyway, just trying to give a bunch of examples there because I don't think it's this big bang theory. I think it's a lot of, a lot of little things that go together. I totally agree. And Ali, I can just comment on what Phil said there. I think one of the mistakes we sometimes make when thinking about mental health in the workplace is we think it's all about, you know, mental health training and, and you know, what is the resilience training that we can give to our workers and things like that. And yet that example of what AWS have done in terms of the Fridays and the meeting free Fridays and giving people that control about training and doing other things okay it's badged as a mental health and wellness intervention but you know what it is it's about looking at those workplace risk factors and addressing them and doing an organizational level intervention and there's a lot of evidence that that's what's more effective dealing with some of the organizational level stuff rather than rolling out individual level resilience training i mean ideally you can do both but actually if you want most bang for buck then deal with those organizational level things. The critical point I think you make, Sam, there, and and it's looking at this as an organization-wide challenge. If you look at it as being an individual challenge that we need to make our individual employees more resilient, you're putting all of the responsibility on them. And we know that that's just not the reality of how pressures exist in a workplace. It's equally true when it comes to performance of a workplace. It's not all down to an individual. It's that your operating model, it's your ecosystem, it's your strategy. So taking that more holistic view across workplace mental health, it just it makes an awful lot of sense. And I'm certainly hearing from both of you as it's being holistic across lots of little things that build up and signal that this actually matters here, like the Wellness Fridays, where they're signaling all month, this matters here. Yeah, totally. It matches the science and also the workforce pick up these things. And if your group of workers get a whole lot of internal communication saying, hey, we care about your mental health, and in fact, what they're doing is just saying, yeah, you need to go along and do this course to increase your resilience, but we don't need to change anything that we're doing. You undermine everything that you're doing. And there's no magic bullet, but if you're doing stuff at the organization level, stuff at the team level with your managers, and then a bit of stuff at the individual level, 
then you're, you're probably doing a good job. For years, observers have talked about Asia's massive future potential. But the future arrived even faster than expected. The question is no longer how quickly Asia will rise, it is how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. We've spoken a little bit about the last couple of years and the impact of the last couple of years, the experience being different depending on the role that you play, whether it's parents, people living alone. Uh, curious to hear from you both a bit about what was the impact of COVID on mental health? Uh, because emerging from the pandemic, that, that shadow of COVID is cast long across our region. Sam, I wonder if maybe we'll start with you. There's a couple of, of big macro trends that we've noticed. I mean, one is that there's been a lot more discussion about mental health and this whole idea of the shadow pandemic. And by and large, I think that has been a, a good thing. And it might be when COVID is all, all done and we look back at, at the impact of that, it, one of my hopes is that the escalation of mental health in places like workplace discussions, that that will be a lasting legacy. In terms of what we've seen in sort of lots of the big national surveys that have happened, undoubtedly during the acute stages of COVID and particularly in countries that had long lockdowns as part of the response, there was definitely an increase in people's reporting of mental health symptoms, mood symptoms, anxiety symptoms. Interestingly, though, pretty much across the board, what we haven't seen is a rise in rates of suicide, which was, was one of the big concerns. And there's all sorts of theories about why that is, why you can have an increased level of symptoms and distress, but not a corresponding increase in, in suicide. And it might be about, you know, the different time it takes to see these different parts of the picture emerge. It might be that actually, you know, there was a lot of transient distress, but communities, families, organisations pulled together and, and, and provided people with the support that was needed. I think, again, it's hard to sort of, that's the overall picture. I think what we're beginning to see is the real effect is different in different groups. And so, as is so often the case with major events, it has a disproportionate impact on those with a lower level of, of resources. So, you know, younger people in insecure work, they're the ones that we've seen a real increase in, in more tangible sort of mental health outcomes. The groups that Phil has been talking about before where they have competing demands of trying to juggle homeschooling and work, plus, you know, maybe more likely to be in casual work in terms of the female workforces in some countries, they're the ones who we're seeing more problems with. And actually, my personal view is some of the financial consequences of COVID that a lot of the world is seeing now. I think that is going to have more of an impact on mental health than the acute stages of COVID, because we know that that that's what really matters in terms of, of mental health. So, yeah, I don't think we've seen a unifying picture emerge. What we've seen is, is different impacts on different groups, and I don't think we've seen the end of it. Yeah, I think to add on to that, at least from an AWS perspective, there wasn't the two years. It was an evolution over those two years. So the, the experience wasn't consistent. I think if you go back to the start of the pandemic, there was mostly 
confusion and fear, right? Nobody knew how long this was going to last. Nobody knew what the death rates were going to be like. Nobody knew when we'd have vaccines available. And that created its own set of, of like I said, confusion and fear. But then as it as it continued to grind on, I think you got into much more of a of a fatigue type of a of a mode. And, and that I think in many regards was even more risky because it's somewhat insidious. You don't really see it happening. It just kind of uh kind of creeps up on you. And you know, AWS is a microcosm of the communities where we do business. So we went through the same things that all other communities went through. We had loved ones on the team that actually passed away from COVID. We had, you know, friends and colleagues whose parents or other loved ones passed away from uh, from COVID, and how we had to try to deal with that virtually. I was personally a part of a virtual funeral service for one of our very, very, very loved directors in the business that passed away, and it was just unbelievably emotional and hearing the stories and the, the stories it was more of a of a remembrance and a, a celebration of his life less so of a uh, traditional kind of a view of a of a funeral which i thought was great but really hard to go through that and then not be able to be in the same you know room with people when you're trying to go through something like that i think makes it a lot tougher and so I think I talked a little bit about this before, but that's when we really started to focus on how do you create more a sense of connectedness, more a sense of community in this virtual environment. And as we started to have people share their experiences, whether it was, you know, the, their own losses or the pressures they felt, um, the feedback was incredibly positive that, well, hey, I'm going through the exact same thing that you're going through. I just didn't know it was everybody else. I thought it was just me. And I think that was when we started to put a lot more emphasis on how do you get people together, not necessarily for a work output, but just to connect, whether they were, like I said, employees kind of sharing with one another, whether it was kind of more of these virtual type of uh, mixers or uh, ways to break the ice with with different team members. What I will tell you now is you kind of go into phase three, right? You had the confusion and fear. You had this kind of fatigue and people feeling worn down. And now we're kind of pretty close to living with COVID. And I've just spent the last eight weeks on the road, been to Seoul and Tokyo and Bangalore and Delhi and Sydney and all over the region. There's a strong desire for people to want to get back together face-to-face and feel that kind of sense of community in a in a real world. And I think it's really important right now that as we see this opportunity, we, we make the, the investment in getting the teams together, whether it's socially, whether it's in the office, whether it's outside the office. And I think there's a huge opportunity here to really continue some of the good things we learned and focused on through COVID, but do it in a physical world now. We've we've spent a bit of time, I think, talking through the the challenges that have been faced the last few years, but also the challenges generally that are faced around workplace mental health, the impacts at the individual, the organization and the societal level, but also the opportunity and that tone of hope that I think is coming through about the the benefits of the last couple of years in terms of connecting people together and connecting with purpose. As we, as we come to an end in the um, in the session today, I, I would love from, from both of you if, if if you've got a, a listener, a leader who's sitting there and they're saying, well, how do I get started? What's what's one piece of advice that you would leave them with? This is going to sound overly uh, simplistic, but I think the one piece of advice that I would give every leader is to treat people the way you 
want to be treated. So think about what you've been going through the last two years. And as I said before, it's probably not that different than what everybody else has. I mean, my own personal situation might be a little bit different. We had lived in Singapore for a long time and my wife is Australian. So when the older two graduated, they came down to Australia to go to university and we got transferred back to Palo Alto, California, and then the pandemic hit. And so we were facing a a very stressful situation where for an indeterminate period of time, as Australia closed its borders, we weren't going to be able to see our children. That was a very difficult, stressful time. So that's my personal kind of story of how COVID impacted me both professionally, but personally. And then, like I said, when I and have empathy and think about what other team members and colleagues are going through, they're going through similar stresses about the impact to their to their family, to their ability to kind of see people or, or be connected and those same kind of risks. So I would strongly encourage people to really think about what their team members are going through, think about how they would want to be treated in that situation, and then treat people that very same way. And part of treating people the way you want to be treated, I think, is understanding the personal impact, particularly as a leader in an organization, you can have on your team members. And that can be positive or it can be hugely negative. I mean, we've all had bosses that we've worked for that we really, really learned a lot from, we really felt connected to, and, and we liked or, 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 or had a very personal relationship connection with. We've also, I think many of us have had the reverse. We've had we've worked for people that we would never work for again. And think about how that impacted you. Think about when you went home to your partner or your loved one, how you felt at the end of the day with those two bosses. And they have a profound impact on, like I said, not just our professional well-being, but our personal and mental well-being as well. And so I think you as a leader, you have a duty of care. You, you hopefully went into leadership to help people advance and develop and, and continue to grow and thrive. And as such, I think it's important to really take a step back and understand that how people feel about the way you treat them is going to have a pretty profound effect on them personally outside of work as well. I'm going to stretch your question and give myself permission to give three bits of advice. One is, and we talked about it earlier, you know, if you're going to be doing stuff around about how to make a more mentally healthy workplace. You have to sort of, you have to do it authentically. Inauthenticity comes through very apparently in this. So you've got to mean it and it's not, you can't just do it for, for one month or whatever. It's a, it's a sort of an ongoing journey, but one that there's, there's abundant research out there shows is worth it in terms of the, the impact you can have on people's lives and also on your profit and performance. The second thing, I'm always slightly surprised when successful business leaders ask me as a psychiatrist how they should do this because, you know, the reason why you're in charge of an organisation, whatever its size or success, is because you are good at at sort of seeing a problem, planning how to fix it, putting the structure in place, the working groups, the whatever to do it. And, and so mental health is... I think part of the stigma around mental health makes us think that somehow it doesn't obey those rules, and it does. You know, all the things that your organisation does to deal with all the challenges will work for mental health as well. In terms of, you know, having the right, having a working group there, having regular checks, all of those things will work for this problem as well. 
But the third thing which you do have to add into that is you've got to get advice from people who know what they're talking about. There's a lot of nonsense out there that is dressed up as interventions for workplace mental health. You know, a lot of stuff that you could spend a lot of time and money on that won't do any good at all. Pointless training programs or things like that. And so, and that might actually be harmful. You know, there are examples of things that have been rolled out because they seem like a good idea, but actually ended up generating more problems. So I think whichever area you're in, being able to get some good quality advice about what works and what doesn't work makes sense. And, and Black Dog Institute's got some stuff on our website that people can use. And I'm sure there are other organisations in different parts of the world that, that provide a similar service in terms of just making sure that we're not wasting resources and good intentions doing stuff that's not going to help. Just before we sign off, one thing I just wanted to say, my, my experience is that when you do a podcast like this, some of the people who have tuned in to listen are not listening just because of what they think they can do in the workplaces that they're helping running, but they may be tuning into this podcast in particular because they themselves are having symptoms of, of depression and anxiety or, or another mental health problem. And I guess the point I just want to reiterate is there are really effective treatments for those types of problems now, but the earlier people get treatment, the better the results. And so I guess it's just a, a call out that if people are listening to this and thinking, yeah, I, I am really struggling, then go see your GP, go to a website like the Black Dog Institute and have a look at the self-help resources that are there and, and sort of start that journey to recovery from this. In this podcast, we've been joined by Sam Harvey and Phil Davis to share their experiences and insights into workplace mental health and well-being and why now is a critical time to take action. We've heard of what it is, why it matters, and how all leaders can take action starting today. This is a critical topic for our time and for our region, and we're very grateful for Sam and for Phil to join us for this conversation today. We know that discussing mental health and workplace mental health can impact people differently. If anything in this session has triggered something for you, please do reach out to your local healthcare provider or go to a site such as the Black Dog Institute for more information. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.